Corey, I know as we were setting up for the interview, you mentioned about uh, the last three years being much different in terms right. of uh, screenwriting and getting out there. Right. Can you talk about uh, some of those changes sure. and what's the current state yeah. of the market? And, and especially in TV writing where a lot of the action is. So if you go back 10 or 15 years and you ask yourself, of all the scripts that are sold, let's put them into three different categories. We have paradigm-driven scripts. We could also call these formula-driven, rules-driven. So these are scripts where... Like if you watch a, a, a bunch of three camera comedies, it's the same story structure, just different jokes. Or you watch a bunch of um, superhero movies over the summer, it's kind of the same story beats are happening at the same time. So these are formula or paradigm driven scripts. So that's one category of scripts that people can write and try to sell. Then there's imitative scripts. So when Breaking Bad was a phenomenal hit, everyone was writing their version of Breaking Bad. Or people would write their version of Arrested Development. So you'd read someone's script and you'd be like, oh, this is like Mad Men, but kind of different. And then the third kind of script is Pitch Perfect Authentic. And so that would be a script that, like when you read the pilot script for Orange is the New Black, it's not like anything you've ever seen. It's like Orange is the New Black. Love it, like it, hate it. It's completely original. Uh, we've never seen these characters. We've never seen this world. And the story is not formulaic. It doesn't hit these preordained plot points, it unfolds in a way that's most compelling for what Genji Cohen, the writer, is trying to communicate. Mad Men's another example, Community, uh, Sopranos, we could just go on and on, uh, Moonlight. So these are scripts that don't follow a paradigm. They don't imitate what somebody else did. They're a wholly original piece of work. Original characters, story, and way of telling that story. So if we go back 12 or 15 years, on the TV market, who's buying Pitch Perfect Authentic scripts? HBO, Showtime, that's it. Everyone else is basically buying paradigm-driven shows, genre-driven shows, or a show that imitates a successful show. So if you wanted to break into the business 10 years ago, even seven years ago, you might follow a formula, you might follow a paradigm. Also, you're looking to get staffed on a TV show. So TV shows hire lots of writers, so if you want to be a comedy writer, you might write a, an episode of Jane the Virgin or an episode of Silicon Valley. If you're a drama writer, you'd write a version of a drama to prove that you could imitate a show. Everything's completely different now. So now when you ask yourself, who's buying Pitch Perfect Authentic scripts, HBO, Showtime, Netflix, Amazon, AMC, FX, and the networks, basically everybody. And the reason is they're all chasing the key demographic, which is 18 to 49. And our generation, we've grown up on on-demand, video-demand platforms. So we've seen so many movies. We've seen so many TV shows. We know what's original and we know what is imitative. And by and large, our generation doesn't watch formula. And so basically the the key demographic wants something that's original, wants something that's new and different. And there's so much you can watch on TV, it really needs to be special to grab your attention and so you to be loyal. So people are loyal to Transparent, they're loyal to Game of Thrones, they're loyal to Jane the Virgin, and these are pitch-perfect authentic shows. So I've read every script that has sold in the last three years and the vast majority are pitch-perfect authentic scripts. Now, there are paradigm-driven scripts that sell. There are imitative scripts that sell. 
but the people who sell those are people who have a real serious track record in that genre. And what agents will always tell my classes is, if you have a standard follow the dots comedy or drama or procedural, unless you've been an executive producer or above, on a hit show in that space, in the last three years, your script's dead on arrival. No one will even read the script. Further, showrunners now, when they staff shows, they won't look at imitation scripts. They don't want to look at your version of a show. They want to read a Pitch Perfect original sh uh, script. And what they always tell my classes is, if you can write to a show, if you can imitate my voice, if you can follow a paradigm or a formula, that doesn't mean you're a great writer. If you're an amazingly great writer, you can ape my voice. You can follow how I tell my stories. So it's really heartbreaking because there's so many books and classes and seminars that probably made a lot of sense five years ago that are teaching people these paradigms or teaching people how to imitate and, and a set of rules that no longer applies. So it's like writers are being trained for a war that doesn't exist anymore. And just real quick in features, if you're going to work for the studios, you are going to be doing a Pixar film, a Star Wars film, or a um, Marvel action film. That's basically your three choices. And they, Pixar has a, a way they tell their stories. Marvel has a way they tell their stories. Star Wars has a way they tell their stories. But I have students, I just have a student who's got her first writing job at Pixar, but the script that she wrote was a pitch perfect authentic script. So even though when they hire her, they're going to expect her to write a Pixar script, you don't break in with a Pixar script. You don't break in imitating or following a formula. You break in with a script that when everyone reads it, they go, holy moly, who wrote this? I've, this is amazing. This writer, I have to meet this writer. I have to be in business with this writer. So when you look at the writers who are writing all the features for the studios, they either have amazing track record of credits like Lawrence Kasdan or they wrote an amazing Pitch Perfect authentic script that no one had seen before, blew people away, and then Marvel's like, hey, would you be interested in doing our, you know, whatever movie we're making? And yes, at that point, when you got hired, you're certainly gonna write it the way Marvel wants you to write it. But the mistake I see is so many writers write their superhero scripts or their paint-by-the-number scripts, and they can't figure out why they can't get a career. They're just simply writing the wrong kinds of scripts. Corey, what are some of the telltale signs when you, let's say, have a, a student in one of your classes that they're using this old right. model that it may just be three years, uh, sure. sort of an outdated way, right. but, but what are some, some tip-offs? So when I work with writers, I separate story design from story execution. So story design is, this, so if you were going on a vacation and you wanted to have a romantic, relaxing vacation, and you ended up in a war zone where people are literally getting killed. There's no room service because everyone's dead, dead bodies in the pool. Can you have a relaxing romantic vacation? And the answer is you could, but it's very unlikely. If you go to a very relaxing romantic resort and everything's perfect, that doesn't guarantee that you'll have a relaxing romantic vacation because you still have to have the vacation and you might be stressed. You might be thinking about work. You might be having a fight with your partner, but if you go to a very relaxing romantic spot, you, you get there in a, you know, you fly first class or you take a night train through Europe and every, the design of your vacation is just perfect. It makes it so much easier to have a relaxing romantic vacation. The mistake that so many writers make is 
they have a problem with their story design, but they try to fix it through execution. So that's like, you're in a war zone, let's turn the volume up so we don't hear the dead people as much. Let's take the dead people out of the pool. Yes, that does make it better, but just leave and go to Hawaii and you'll be in much better shape. So I always start with story design to make sure people, I'm sorry if I could back up. So the key is when someone's having a problem with their script, is it a problem with design or is it a problem with execution? Because other writers will have a great design, but they'll mess it up in execution, get feedback that it's not working and throw their design out. So if there's a problem with design and you keep trying to fix it in execution, that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But at the same time, you might have a great story design, but you just aren't able to find the right execution. So people will, I'll often do a consult with someone and the script's pretty good, but the ending's terrible. And when I talk to them, it always comes up, we're like, well, that's not my original ending. And I go, what is your original ending? And when they tell me, I'm like, that's a great ending. Like, I know, but everyone said it, I didn't believe it, it was trite. Everyone had criticisms. They were criticizing the execution, not the design. So the, sorry, taking the long way around to the question, but so when I'm working with story design, it's when someone is working from a formula or a paradigm or a set of rules, first of all, you're just not interested when you hear it. It's incredibly predictable and it just feels generic. It feels like an Ikea piece of furniture. It's like, I've seen this story a million times. And the other key thing is at some point, I'll just stop them and I'll say, why does this happen? Like, why did the character do this? And the real answer is because the writer wanted or needed or felt like they needed the character to do this. So it's not authentic, it's not organic, and it's not the best way of telling the story. It's, it's literally following a recipe. Okay, so how are you, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, so let me just see if I can understand the difference between design and execution. So design is like the structure of it and they're doing this perfect sort of three-act structure, but it's too predictable, whereas execution are the little details? I'm no, so execution is actually when you're writing. So it's the dialogue, it's the characters, it's the comedy, it's the actual writing of it. The design is having the entire story worked out before you've written a word. Okay. And okay. you need mm -hmm. to be able to create pitch-perfect design and then execute it authentically, where these are real characters that we're compelled with and everything that's happening feels this is really what the character would do, but it also is what's really interesting to the story. Because the problem that a lot of writers get into is if they slowed things down, they'd realize that there's key points in their script where they ask themselves, if this was a real person, this character, what would they really do? And let's say it's this, they would do this. Then they ask themselves from a story point of view, what makes for the most interesting story? And it's that. And so some writers, will just do what the character would actually do. And their scripts feel very organic, but they're not strong stories. Other writers will follow, oh, this is what makes for the best story. But, so they have good, strong structure, but it doesn't feel organic or believable. So one of the key skill sets, and so when I work with writers, this is the, the first thing that I teach them. And I think that this is the foundational skill set, and I call it creative integration. And so the way it works is, Writers tend to work from one of two places inside themselves and it has to do with the brain and there are a conceptual part of the brain and an intuitive part of the brain. And most writers tend to be more conceptual or more intuitive. So 
conceptual writers tend to work outside in. They tend to be very concerned about the story, that the story is logical, that the story makes sense, that the story is interesting to other people. Conceptual writers are very concerned about what other people are gonna think about this writing and will they think this is good, will they think I'm a good writer? So they want really interesting things happening and they want a lot of interesting things happening and they want it to make sense and they want it to have causality and that's really, really important to them. Intuitive writers are completely different. The intuitive part of the brain doesn't care what other people think. It just cares about what is authentically true to you. So intuitive writers are navigating towards what they would do in that situation or just what's interesting and compelling to them or what the character would really do. And it's a very different way of writing. One, the conceptual is outside in and the intuitive is inside out. So a conceptual writer would say, I have this great idea and I've got to figure it out. I got to break the story before I could write it. If you don't know where you're going, how are you going to get there? It's a very systematic, logical approach to writing. The intuitive writer is going to be someone who says, I need to write this out to figure out what the story is. They find it through the journey. They find it through exploring. Intuitive writers explore. Conceptual writers decide. And they each have different inherent strengths and weaknesses. So let's start with conceptual writers. Conceptual writers when you ask them, why did you write this? Why is this script important to you? It's almost always a big idea, a what if, something that could be commercial, a new way of doing a comedy. I thought this was a great idea for a horror film, or it's a theme they wanna explore, an intellectual theme. And so they're really good at big ideas, big concepts, and they're really good at making sure everything happens for a reason and there's forward momentum and there's causality and they have lots of interesting things happening that we're just not that interested in. And one of the reasons we're not that interested in it is their characters are never compelling enough. Their characters feel kind of like they were invented to tell this story because they were. They're kind of like puppets who are there to tell the story and we just don't get an emotional connection to the characters. The other reason that they hit a glass ceiling they can't get through is there's all these interesting things happening in the script, but we're not that interested in them because we don't feel anything. Because the writer didn't feel anything when they wrote it. And it's an energy transference business. So conceptual writers got great ideas, lots of big, great things happening, but the characters just aren't where they need to be and it's just not emotionally engaging. And most of those writers know that, but they don't know what to do about it. Intuitive writers are the opposite. They bleed on the page, and these characters are like real people to them. They don't invent the characters, they don't design the characters, they discover them. And that's why a lot of intuitive writers don't often get lonely when they write, because they're spending time with their friends, they're spending time with people that they care about. And so if I'm working with a conceptual writer and the character's not engaging enough, they'll say, well, what can we do to change it? Should we make her older, younger? Let's make her bisexual, let's change her ethnicities, let's take her arm off, let's make her a quadriplegic. What can we do to make her? If I'm working with a deep intuitive writer and their characters aren't interesting enough, that would be like talking to a mom and saying, your daughter's not that popular at school, let's take her arms off, let's make her a quadriplegic, let's make her older. It'd be like, that's crazy, this is a real person, you can't change who they are. 
Intuitive writers, like, they're very connected to their characters. And then as a result, they tend to create really compelling characters, really compelling emotion. And these really compelling characters are forever searching for a compelling story they can't find. Because the intuitive writer is so inside out and so connected to emotion and character, that part of them cannot create strong story. It's the, the conceptual brain has a perpendicular processor and it has a certain way of thinking and strengths and weaknesses. The intuitive brain has a parallel processor. And anyone, if they're interested, um, you can email my, uh, my assistant, which is lisa at coreymandel.net, and we can get you a bunch of information on this if you're interested. But to take this further, what happens is most writers, if not all writers, when they're writing, they're trying to write the best script they can write. And if you're smart, and writers are very smart, you play to your strengths and you hide your weaknesses. So if I was uh, playing tennis against you for the championship and I'm really good at my forehand, but I'm weak at my backhand, I would try to play everything to my forehand and hide my, and you of course would try to make me play my backhand. So writers are always writing to their strengths and trying to hide their weaknesses. And maybe they know they're doing it, maybe they don't, but they're doing it. I see this all the time. And so what happens is over time is their strengths get stronger and their weaknesses get weaker. And that is why there's so many writers who pour heart and soul and all this time and energy to have a career and they can't get there because their scripts aren't quite good enough. When I work with a writer, I will train them through creative integration. So what we will do is we will make them write to their weakness and hide their strength. So if I'm right hand and I do everything with my right hand and my left hand is really uncoordinated, if I literally tie my right hand behind my, black, my back for a month and I do everything with my left hand, it's going to get stronger and more coordinated. Now during that month, I might spill a lot of things and be very uh, inefficient, but over time I'll develop my left arm, my coordination, the strength. Then I'll learn how to integrate the two. So for a conceptual writer, they will work exclusively from the intuitive part. They will learn how to turn off the conceptual part. The conceptual part is the part that has all these big ideas and worries about story a lot, has all this anxiety and judgment and you turn that off and teach them how to create from a pure, authentic, emotional space. Now their writing may not be well structured, it may not be something they're gonna show an agent, but they will, through that process, their characters will come alive. Their dialogue will come alive. And you'll, one of the key things when I do intuitive training is to get you to think about something in your life where you feel something very strong and then your writing, when other people read it, they're going to feel what you feel. So you can get people to have the emotional experience you had when you wrote it. Then when I help you learn how to discover actual characters, and there's a whole bunch of training to get to the point where that's a real person for you. Then you can write that person from what they're feeling and people will feel that. And then you can start putting characters into conflict and it'll all be authentic characters. And so that's the intuitive training. And when they get to the point where their characters and their dialogue and everything is organic and authentic as best as the best writers out there, then I'll teach them how to integrate that back to the conceptual side so that they all have the best possible stories and the best possible characters. And then obviously for an intuitive writer, it's the opposite. They will turn that part of their brain off. They'll work purely from conceptual until they're a rock star and then we'll integrate. And that process it's just so rewarding to work with writers because if they come out the other end, literally their agent, their manager, or their spouse will say, they'll read a script and say, I love you, but you didn't write this. I hear this all the time. I don't believe you wrote this because 
your stories aren't this crisp and compelling. I mean, this has all your great character work, but you can't, like who, who helps you with the stories? Or someone will say, you don't write characters this great. I love you, I love your writing, but this is like, you know, Orange is a New Black or Mad Men. I mean, this is just that high level of characters. And it's like, it literally is transformative. And then the last thing I'll say, which is really cool about creative integration is that most writers, occasionally they have these flow days where everything is just pouring out of them and it's so great. You're doing your best material and you love those days and you wish you could live in those days. And then writers have those days which are the exact opposite where you're pounding your head against the wall just trying to get something on the page. And I think for most writers that I work with, they're often somewhere in between. The really great thing about creative integration is almost all your days will be flow days because this is what caused flow, this is what happens. When a writer's writing, there's what would be best for the story? What is the best thing to make the story move forward in the most interesting way? And a lot of writers, especially intuitive writers, they don't know the answer. And that's really confusing and frustrating. Excuse me, now even if you do know the answer, and let's say it's that, then of course, what would my character really do? And if it's the same thing, and then you ask yourself, what do I most want to write today? Like, what gets me most exciting about writing day? It's the same thing. All three navigational systems line up. That's a flow day. That's when it's all coming out of you. It's your best writing. You want to live in those days. When you don't know what the character would do, or you don't know what's best for the story, or you know, but this is what's best for the story. This is what the character would do. This is what you most want to write. It's all, those are the worst days. So what creative integration does is it allows people to train and know with a set, a suite of uh, tools, what would be best for my story? They'll be able to go to another part and know what my character really do. They'll go to another part and know what they're most interested in writing. And then they'll have tools to integrate, which is to bring those three things into alignment. And so I can't say that every writing day will be a flow day, but most of the writers I've trained, they'll say, used to be 10 to 20% were flow days. Now it's like 80%. And so they, not only does the quality of the writing greatly improve, but so does the quantity. So let's say somebody knows, you know, I'm very right-brained, okay. I'm very intuitive, right. and I resonate with music and emotions and color, right. but I really have trouble connecting the dots right. and staying on task. Right. And I, I'm actually speaking personally about myself. So okay. if I know that about myself as right. a writer, and I know that what's going to show up on the page is that the story is going to lack any kind of continuity. Probably there's going to be right. some issues. How do I rein myself in? Because as a right brain person, th that's one of my, right. my issues. I have trouble reining myself sure. in. So how would somebody who's so used to being, Oh, I I'm going to go with this emotion. I'm going to go with this. Right. So make themselves more right. linear. So it's different for every writer, but generally speaking, what I would probably do if I was working with you is, the first thing I would say is we're going to turn off your intuitive side and develop your conceptual side so that you're going to be able to naturally and easily be able to connect the dots, but not only connect the dots, but do it with real strong stakes and clarity and strong escalations. And you're going to be able to create as strong of a story as anyone in the industry. And that story in a sense is, is a glass. And then we're going to teach you how to pour your characters and your dialogue and your emotion and all of that intuitive stuff into that structure so that now your characters and your dialogue will be in service of a super strong story. So, and then usually the writer's like, oh, that's exciting. I want to do that. How do I do that? Then I say, okay, well, here's step one. 
I want you to imagine that we're going to go behind the barn and take everything that you love about writing and we're just going to shoot it in the head. And that's when the writer's like, oh, I don't want to do that. But that's what it feels like because what we need to do is turn off that part of you that is that dreamy, intuitive, emotional, connective, instinctive part of you. Now, we're not going to kill that forever. That is such a valuable part of you. But we are literally going to turn it off. Because here's the thing. If it's on, your conceptual brain can't be on. They both can't be on at the same time. They're connected by a corpus callosum. And just physiologically speaking, they can't be on at the same time. It would, uh, would short-circuit the fight-or-flight mechanism. So we're going to turn this off. And so the training in the beginning is we are going to be creating simple stories and then more complex stories and eventually scripts, but there'll be no characters and there'll be no dialogue. And we're literally like going to be playing with just puppets and we are going to be doing, we're going to, I'm going to drill you uh, day in and day out, week in and week out on exercises for story logic and for story continuity. But so if I may back up the, there's a really cool class out there called Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain. I'm sorry, yeah, Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain. And they have um, the before and after pictures. They have these people who are terrible illustrators. And they do self-portraits. And you look at it and you're like, these... I wouldn't even call these stick figures because that'd be an insult to stick figures. These are terrible drawings. And then they have three days later, the same person does their same self-portrait. And it's like, this is amazing. Like, how can someone in three days go from being such a terrible drawer to such an amazing drawer. And so the key is she has broken down the drawing into five specific skill sets. And one of them is contrast, one of them is shapes. And this is the key. She teaches you contrast or she teaches you shapes uh, completely separate from all the others. So you can't learn shaping if you're worried about what the picture looks like, if you're worried about it being a good picture. You just learn shaping. You just learn contrast. You just learn color. I actually don't know what the five things are by heart, but you learn all five things in isolation. And then at the end, she teaches you how to integrate it. So that's what we would do. So we would be drilling you on story logic and you'd have a whole week of those exercises, but they're not real characters. It's not a script you're working on. These are just training exercises. Then we're going to drill you on five weeks of story causality. Then we're going to work on logic and clarity and perspective. And then we're going to be working on escalations. Then we're going to be creating conceptually strong characters and moving them. And you're going to ultimately create a story where we don't know anything about the characters. We have no emotional connection. But when you look down at that story, you're going to say that has a clear beginning, middle, and end. It has a forward momentum and escalations. If that story was populated with super compelling characters and dialogue, it could be amazing. And you're just going to be able to do that over and over again. You probably won't enjoy this training. It probably won't be fun. In fact, writers usually complain because they're like, this feels like math. And this is I want to be a writer because I hate math. Right. When can we do the fun stuff? And it's like, <laughs> you cannot do the fun stuff until you are an expert at this. Because here's the truth, and this is really sad. Intuitive writers, when I read their script, I'll give you a true story. I'm a mentor for Film Independent, and they have a lab. And they bring in these writers, and then you're uh, mentored by writers and directors of some of the best independent films. And I came in at the end sort of cleanup where the writer had all these notes and before they went to do the rewrite, I would work with them to sort of make sure their plan was in good shape. So I kind of came in at the end of the process. And I worked with this writer, this wonderful woman, and she had gone to one of the major film schools and had an MFA. And she, ever since she was a little girl, all she wanted to do was be a writer. And she'd 
she was so excited to get in this program and she had written the script and some of the writers and directors of her favorite movies read her script and gave her feedback. And so my job is to see what her rewrite plan is and see if I can bring any value to it. So I go, hey, how's it going? She goes, it's going good, but she said it in a really like things are not going good way. And I go, so what's going on? She goes, I quit. And I'm like, you're not going to write this? She goes, no, I quit. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I'm not going to write anymore. I'm done. And I couldn't be happier. This is a load off my shoulder. And like she starts crying. And it's so sad. And this is a very representative story. I see this all the time. So I get into this. Why are you quitting? What happened? So what happened is she's this really intuitive writer. And so she's in this program and she had a character that she loved more than anything. And she loved the story more than anything. And she wrote this script. And she said, everyone was giving me feedback. They, it was like the feedback was contradictory. It's like they all read a different script. That's what happens with intuitive writers because they have, no, they have no story structure and they have no clarity. And literally everybody does read a different story. So all these really great writers and directors were giving her feedback on the stories that played in their head when they read the script. None of them were the story that played in the writer's head. But the real coup de grace was she knew she wasn't good at story structure. But she thought she was great at characters. And they all told her, your character is not that strong. You, you need to write stronger characters. So she said, if I can't do story structure and my character is not that good, and these are the best people in the industry telling me that, I've got nothing. So I have to quit. I've got nothing to hang my hat on. So I said, well, do me a favor before you quit. Will you just answer some questions? And so she said, okay. So I asked her all these questions about her character and why do you love your character and what does your character do and tell me about the story and what happens here and why does this happen? And, and we, we, after about an hour of questions, I could really experience and see what she was seeing and experiencing. And it was one of the most hauntingly beautiful characters. And it was such a great story. But I told her, I got almost none of that when I read your script. And the movie that plays in my head when I read your script, it was really boring. And I didn't understand or, or care about your character. But the character that you experience, the character that's inside of you, that is a really powerful character. You need to learn how to develop these conceptual tools so that you can take this amazing character, this amazing wine, and get it into the right vessel, the right structure. Not a formulaic structure, but a custom design structure that will showcase your character and the story you want to tell. And she's like, oh, I can never do that. I can never. And anyway, she did end up taking classes from me and it took her longer than most people. It took her probably a year to get really strong at the conceptual side and probably another year to really learn how to integrate that. That she then wrote that script. Everybody loved it. She didn't sell it, but she got an agent off of that. And now she's a very successful TV writer. And the funny thing actually is the person who hired her uh, at one point said, you're, you're really great with characters, but I just hired you because I just needed someone who's so good with story. Huh. And she, was, she had to call me because she's like, I got hired because they think I'm really good at story. <laughs> the thing is, she's really good at story. It's almost like someone who's been heavy their whole life and now they're thin, they still think they're heavy. Like she still, it took a while for her confidence to catch up to her abilities. So what breaks my heart is that there's all these intuitive writers out there and people are reading their scripts and they're just not that interesting. They're not that good. But if you could know what was playing inside their heads and their hearts, you'd be like, now that's powerful. But they don't know that and they don't train themselves. So it's like how many, you know, how many transparents have the world not had or how many, 
Sopranos or Moonlight. How many of these projects never came to fruition because there's a writer out there who has something like that inside them, but they can't get it on the page where we can experience it. And conversely, you have these conceptual writers. I have a um, Nick, who's one of my students, who then went on to sell a script and, and direct it, and it was, a, it was a sizable hit. So now he's kind of like the big new comedy guy. So he's looking for his next project to direct. And we had uh, lunch a few weeks ago, and he's complaining because he's like, I'm reading all these scripts. They are so smart. They're, it's a great premise for a comedy. Um, there's all these funny set pieces. But these characters feel like stock characters. They feel like characters I've seen before. And it's funny, but there's no heart to it. Like he wants to do, a, he's trying to do something like in the vein of Groundhog Day, something that's funny, but it has some heart to it. It has some depth to it. And he's like, all these writers can't do that. And then I read these other writers and they've got so much depth, but it's just so incoherent and messy, right? So these conceptual writers, when I work with them, it's they are working from a pure intuitive place. The, the metaphor I would give a conceptual writer is you're riding a horse and you need to get home and you're guiding, the horse is taking you there, but you're guiding the horse. You are the conceptual person. The horse is the intuitive and you're guiding the horse where you want it to go. Sometimes when you get lost, you have to let the horse guide you. And that's what we're gonna do, is we're gonna let your inner horse, your inner intuitive, just take you wherever it wants to take you to. And you're not gonna judge it, you're not gonna control it. Now, it's gonna take you wandering around and you're like, this isn't a good story, this is off topic, this is de-escalating, no one's gonna be able to care about this. Yeah, the horse knows where it's going and the journey won't be a great story. But the horse is going to take you to some clearing with the sun in the lake that is just going to be the most beautiful place you've ever been. And, and it is going to be life-changing that you experience that. And then we'll teach you how to create a story around that space. But you'll never find that inside you and let, until you let the horse just go where it wants to go. But most conceptuals are like, okay, I'll let the horse take me where it wants. And the horse starts doing pages and it's like... Yeah, but this part of the forest is boring. I'm bored by it. I know a reader would be bored by it. I couldn't sell this anywhere. Okay, stop it, horse. I'm going to help because you don't know what you're doing. It's like, no, the horse is taking you somewhere if you let it. And so, sorry for talking your ear off. But I, like, no. what's for, what, for me, what is so frustrating is that there are writers out there that sacrifice so much in terms of time and money because they want to be writers. And they're you know that you have to work a lot. You know you have to write a lot of scripts. And all of that time and energy is time and energy that you're not spending elsewhere in your life. It's a big sacrifice. Plus, they spend money on classes and seminars and books and software. And it's a big investment. And they have a dream. And they want to tell stories. And they want to live a creative life. And they want to bring their visions to life for other people. And so many of them, they just like keep writing all of these scripts thinking they're getting better, but they're just creating a larger pile of similarly flawed scripts. And it's because they don't have the right tools. They don't have all of the right tools. And just as an example, there's so many writers that were like, I know my characters and dialogue aren't that strong, but I don't know what to do about it. I just think there's something wrong with me. And then they always write big concept comedies or big concept thrillers where it doesn't matter if your characters are that good because they'd love to write The King's Speech. They'd love to write... Um, Silicon Valley. They'd love to write Mad Men, but they're like, I'm not good enough. And they're agents and managers that won't sign them because they're like, 
I can teach you structure to some extent. I can't teach you an ear for dialogue. I can't teach you to write. If you don't have that, you don't have that. But what I would tell those writers is if you want to be a carpenter and you want to pound nails into wood and you can't do that, you can't pound nails into wood, you're never going to be a carpenter. And people are trying for years to pound nails into wood and it doesn't work. And they're like, I guess I just suck as a carpenter. But no, they're using a straw. They're using a drinking straw to pound those nails into wood. They're using the wrong tool. If you gave them a hammer, they might be a little clumsy, after, but after they got good with the hammer, they're like, oh, I can do this. Their conceptual writers are using their conceptual tools to try to create characters. It doesn't work. And intuitive writers are trying to drink a milkshake with a hammer. You know, so if we can give everyone a straw and a hammer, if we can give people the various tools, get them really good at those tools, then suddenly writers can write at a whole nother level they didn't even know existed. It sounds like left brain, i.e. conceptual writers, have a lot of trouble letting go. They're just, they're so formulaic and they're so much about, you know, making sure that this makes sense and that, you know, whereas with these right brain people, they're just all over the place and they're just too easily led. So it sounds like you do exercises to help the left brain people let go and the right brain people yeah. so, or let themselves way. in. So there's a great video that I can send people. Again, you can email my system, which is lisa at coreymandel.net. And so it's a neurologist and she'll really break down the conceptual and the intuitive parts of the brain and literally what one part is good at, what the other part is good at, but they can't talk to each other they, because they have a different processor. It's like the old days with PCs and Apple. So like you have a dream, which is a very intuitive experience, non-linear, uh, non-causal, but it's really evocative. And then you try to tell someone about the dream, which is a conceptual exercise. And the best you can do is kind of like get them to go, oh, I see how you had a really interesting dream, but they don't necessarily <laughs> experience it that right, way. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, it's the, the hardest part is turning off your home base. And then when I can get you over to this other side, I will give you exercises because everyone knows about this 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Well, even Malcolm Gladwell has said that 10,000 hours was the wrong thing to focus on. That, there's nothing magical about 10,000 hours. What he said was 10,000 hours of dedicated practice. And everyone latches on to 10,000 hours, but everyone forgets dedicated practice. Dedicated practice is the way people become an expert in something is, sure, they got to put a lot of time and energy and passion into it. But it's not, it's what they do with their training, it's how they train. And so if you think about, if you wanted to be, uh, I train at Second City Improv, they don't let you on stage for a year and a half because they are, you're doing specific exercises every day to learn certain key skill sets that ultimately they'll integrate together and then they'll put you on stage. Same thing with Juilliard and acting. Same thing if you're a professional athlete. Um, it's about specific exercises to train yourself to develop the key skill sets and integrate. And so I, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point. Now I was a, a, a working studio writer for 11 years. And while I did that, I taught once a year at UCLA um, to give back and for fun. And then over the last six years, I've been um, uh, building a teaching business and teaching and working with writers. And I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of people who are very successful writers. And almost all of them either figured all this stuff out themselves, which takes about 10 to 12 years for most people, or they had someone help them. And usually there's two kinds of people that help them. A manager, or they get 
to be a writer's assistant and staffed on a TV show and the, that showrunner, following that showrunner's process, I know someone who worked on Breaking Bad and working with Vince Gilligan for three years taught her how to change her process. In fact, this is a great story. She was very intuitive and she got on to Breaking Bad. And Breaking Bad, what will happen is in the beginning of the season, uh, Vince Gilligan will ask every, all the writers in the room to come up with certain ideas and pitch ideas. And if he likes the idea, he writes it on an index card and it goes on the board. And ultimately there's all these ideas on the board that they're gonna start to work with to develop the, 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 the season. Well, if you're a new writer, you really wanna get a lot of ideas on the board. Cause if he's going around the room and none of your ideas get on the board, that doesn't look so good. Well, his rule was the idea had to fit on the card. So if you start pitching an idea and he's writing and he runs out of room, might be a great idea, but if he ran out of room on the card, it doesn't go on the board. And she's like, I couldn't get my ideas out concisely enough. She said, I didn't know how to speak an index card. And so she had to learn, and this is one of the things that I train intuitive writers to do, is how to take what they see and feel and how to communicate it in a very concise way. And so that's just one example. I'm sure she learned a million things from working with someone like Vince Gilligan. But that's just one example. She learned how to be very concise in how she thought and felt and, and pitched. So the way that most writers get here is they've worked in TV for several years with a really great showrunner and through that process you learn these skill sets and you adapt and you develop or you just get pushed out. Or there's a manager who will work intently with you because the reality is most writers if not all writers, they have certain strengths, certain weaknesses, and certain blind spots. Blind spots are weaknesses you don't know you have. The key is to A, figure out what your blind spots are, so now at least they're known weaknesses. Then how do you turn those weaknesses into strengths? And that's where that dedicated practice comes in. And it's very difficult to do this yourself. So a manager who really knows what they're doing, they will develop a writer over, you know, they'll, they'll take a writer who's really good, but not exceptional, and they will train that writer over one, two, or three years to do this. And then when that writer can write at that level, they'll go out with a script pretending that that was the first thing the writer ever wrote. By definition, when you sell something, that's the first script you ever wrote. You never talk about the rest of it. So the, the writers that I know who have careers, especially the best careers, Generally speaking, either they were trained by showrunners because they were able to work in TV early on, or they were trained by managers. Very few of them were self-trained. It's possible, I know of some examples, but it took a decade and, and they're rare that they got there. Well, the reality is there are a lot of writers who don't live in LA, so they can't work on a show. And even if you live in LA and you're like, okay, I'll work on a show for training, where do I sign up? It's not that easy, it's very competitive. And the thing about managers is, they're so busy servicing their clients, um, no one wants to do development anymore. So the manager has to really work with their, their top writers and really help them develop their material. They don't have time to work with their new writers, their emerging writers. So there's all these writers who are like, I have a manager, but they won't spend a lot of time helping me. And there's all these managers saying, God, I really wish I could be helping these writers, but I don't have time. So it's really hard to find someone to do that kind of training. So that's when I, I used to teach at UCLA for a long time. I was, and someone challenged me this, like, can you develop a training program to train writers like this if they don't have a manager who can do this for them, if they're not yet able to get on a, a TV show or they don't want to or they don't live in LA? Is there another way they can learn these skill sets? Because 
a lot of the, 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 the programs out there, they're just telling people to take your writing and put it into this paradigm. But so what I did is I wanted to create a series of workshops that could teach these, these, these skills. So that's where this all came from. I know you had said in another video that when you were teaching at UCLA that each, and I'm, forgive me if you're on the semester system or the quarter system, but okay, each quarter or semester you would see maybe two people in the right. class that you really felt were like right. the gem and the, uh, the gems and the other ones, although with time and with proper training, they could become that. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, those two people, as hypothetical, yeah. would they really know? Could they see that they were different from the other writers? Usually. And really? Okay. How would they know and, and what would they, how, how could they see it and how could you see it? So, I was talking about this with a manager the other day and, and I'm afraid I'm going to over answer your question so I apologize ahead of time. So, one of the key skill sets in addition to creative integration is to build the right in compelling conflict. And compelling conflict is what takes great characters and great dialogue and just makes it pop off the page. It's just, it's hard to explain, but you have a, you have a visceral experience when you read, you can read, you look, you read some stuff, it's just bad. And then you read some stuff and it's got some great moments and some great characters or dialogue, but it's nothing really happening. Then you read some stuff and it's, it's good. Things are happening and it's interesting, but then you read something and it just pops off the page. It just, you can tell, I was a studio reader. And I could tell within one page if someone knew what they were doing, if it popped off the page or not. Now, if that one page was great, I don't know if they could write a, a whole script. I have to keep reading. But if that one page didn't pop, I knew they couldn't. And yeah, if I had a class of about 20 people, they're usually about two people and their writing just sort of popped off the page more than others. They didn't, didn't know why necessarily, but everyone could tell. And I think they could tell they would often not say anything. It's like in a writing group, there's usually one person whose writing just is better than everyone else's or in an MFA program. It just, maybe people don't know why, but it does. What I've learned is it's because they're writing in compelling conflict. And I find that about 5% of the writers that come to work with me naturally do that. I don't have to teach them. It just has that popping off the page. And about 5% sorta do that. And the other 90% are anywhere from they need some work to they, they, they suck at it. They just suck at it. But you can teach people how to do it. So a great example is Neil Simon, the playwright. He has a book called Rewrites, which is his autobiography. And he talks about like year after year when he was a younger man, he'd write these plays and he loved the characters and, and, and everyone thought they were hysterically funny, but they, there was just something missing. It just didn't hold together. It just wasn't interesting enough. And over time, he's like, I know something's missing, but I don't know what it is. And I know a lot of writers who feel that way, and it's a really terrible feeling. He eventually did the one thing he never wanted to do is he went to his older brother, who was a really successful writer. And his older brother read his stuff and said, you're not writing in compelling conflict. And Neil Simon's like, what are you talking about? What is this? And he said, my older brother taught me what it was. And then the light bulb went off. And so then he said, I would just structure my compelling conflicts and then pour in all the character and comedy. And that's how he did his career. Um, David Mamet, um, and this is on my website or you can look online, um, he did a, um, a memo uh, about a decade ago or so to the writers of the unit, his TV show. And he basically said, you will learn how to write in compelling conflict or you'll be in the blanking unemployment line or the bread line. And there's a lot of F-bombs in this memo, but he's basically saying, 
this is not a natural skill set for most people. You will learn to do this or you will not survive. And so I didn't know it at the time. And, and to go back to your question, actually, the, the, for the truth of my experience was the 18 people whose stuff wasn't popping off the page, they weren't, I wasn't able to get them there. And so I, like a lot of teachers, and I talk teachers at UCLA and other film schools, and they'll say this privately. I don't know if they'll say this publicly. It's like, yeah, when you teach a class, you're teaching for that one or two person or people who have what it takes. The rest don't. But look, they have a dream. Support them. Be encouraging. Don't tell them that they don't have what it takes. They'll figure it out. And then when they figure it out, they will give up this dream and they'll find a dream that they have the talent for because not everyone could be a world-class chef. Not everyone could be a professional athlete. And so we teach for that one or two that have what it takes. And for the rest, we don't tell them that they don't have what it takes. We could be wrong, but they'll figure it out. And that's a real fixed mindset way of approaching this. And one of the books that changed my life as a teacher is Mindset by Carol Dweck. I make all my students read it. It's the only thing I make them read. She talks about the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And the growth mindset is, okay, these two people who their stuff's popping off the page, why? What skills, what talent do they have that other people don't have? And the growth mindset says talent is repeatable skill sets. And maybe you're born with them. Maybe you develop them through nurture and childhood, or maybe you learn them as an adult. It doesn't matter how you acquire them. It's just a skill set that's repeatable, as opposed to luck. So a repeatable skill set is, you know, you learn how to drive a car, and you can drive, now you can always drive a car, ride a bike. And so they have the people that pop off the page. They have certain skill sets, certain tools that other people don't. If you can figure out what those are, compelling conflict, and then you can figure out how to teach compelling conflict, then you can teach those skill sets to other people and they can learn that talent. And with, so I, I, have, I had a writer that come, came to me, his name's Gary, and he had a manager and he was always taking meetings, but he could never sell anything. He could never get hired. He felt like he was that close to a career for five years. And then at some point you're like, Okay, this something's not here. Something's not working. So he came to me, deeply intuitive writer. Um, the, he wrote the most amazing characters and dialogue. I didn't. All I taught him on that front was don't change what you're doing. <laughs> you know, like you're amazing. Just keep doing that. Don't let anyone interfere with that. But on the conceptual side, you've got some real weaknesses. And him specifically was escalations. How to keep making things get strong. Like keep making things worse and worse in an organic way. That was his, so he was an easy case in that he had everything but one skill set. He was really missing one skill set. So I gave him those training exercises and then unbeknownst to me, when I was done with that class, he spent the next three months doing those training exercises every day for four hours. I didn't know that. That's a growth mindset guy. That's a guy who's like, I want to become an expert at this skill set that I naturally am terrible at. And at the end of those three months, he was as good at that as a natural conceptual writer is good at that. He was just as good at that as anyone. He now has a movie come that uh, I think it's released in the fall starring, um, oh, what's her name? Um, anyway, not Reese Witherspoon, but someone like, anyway, he has a movie that, that come out. He has Great. a team of C agents. He sold two TV pilots. And 
he had everything but that one skill set. Now, at the same time, I've worked with writers who are great at escalations and, and great at big concepts, but their characters and dialogue, it's just like these are puppets. And through the intuitive training, they could come out the other end where their characters and dialogue are just as good as these people who are naturally great. So the key is you have natural talents and then there's talents that you don't have or you're not that strong at. If you train the right way, you can, if you're willing to put the time and effort in the right way, you can end up being just as talented as someone who's naturally that way. And that's the growth mindset. So for years, I honestly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but for years I would teach a class and I'd come home, my wife say how it goes. I go, these two people I think could have careers. The rest of them, not so much. And over time, usually those two people would go on to have careers and none of the others. And I'm like, well, I teach for those two people. I encourage everyone else because you never know, but probably going to find out they don't have what it takes. When I changed this approach, and it took a long time and all effort, I remember I had a class where there, it was only 10 people. There was one person who you could tell how to take the other nine, no. And within four years, one of those nine people dropped out because of long story. So that left eight. And of that eight, six of them went on to got careers. And I wasn't a smarter or more dynamic or I wasn't a better teacher than prior. I just had a different teaching approach. And it was the approach that was radically different, this whole creative integration skill set thing approach. So it took me years and a lot of help from other people. I didn't just invent all this myself. But that's the really cool thing about talent. And is that it's repeatable skill sets and you can learn these skill sets and you can develop them if you know how to train yourself and you're willing to put the time and energy into it. Let's talk about this hypothetical class of 20 people, two excellent people that you think have potential to have careers and the 18 that don't. Do you think those 18 people want to hear the truth? Knowing that they can be it's malleable, they can, you know, sort of, you can mold them to, but do they really want to hear it? And talk about this growth mindset versus what's the other side of that coin, which is? Yeah, fixed mindset. Fi okay. And so, how do you know you're experiencing a student that has the fixed mindset ah, perfect. and they don't want to hear it? Perfect, perfect, perfect question. That is such a smart question. So, the fixed mindset, first of all, believes that if you want to be a writer, you either have this talent or you don't. So then it's, you are constantly have this voice in your head that says, do I have what it takes? Do I have the talent? Am I wasting my time? Am I going to get a career or is it never going to happen for me? That constant fear-based chatter is that fixed mindset. And because of that, the fixed mindset, and you ask such a smart question, it desires an outcome. So. If I had a script and I go, hey, will you guys read my script and just give me your feedback? I want to know what you think. There's the fixed mindset and the growth mindset, and they're both there. I don't think it's one or the other. I think they both exist. It's just sort of a ratio. Are you 90% growth mindset and 10% fixed? When I give you guys a script, I go, just tell me what you think. My fixed mindset wants an outcome. It wants you to, to say, well, now I know why you had a career. Now I know why you teach others. This is maybe the best script I ever read. I am, I'm literally in awe to be in the same room with you. I, I didn't know a human being could write this, this well. This, is, this was the most amazing script ever. Like that's what my fixed mindset wants to hear. And when it doesn't hear it, 
it's going to throw a temper tantrum. And at that point, it has two choices and only two choices, which is what's wrong with you guys or what's wrong with me. So you always hear writers out there saying, yeah, my manager said that the characters weren't strong enough. You know, I got to change managers. I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or they'll say, yeah, my manager said the characters weren't good enough. I don't, I, I don't know why. I, I'm no good at characters. There's something wrong with you. Or there's something wrong with me. That's the only choices that it has. The growth mindset does not crave or desire an outcome. It desires the truth. So the growth mindset wants to know, what did you honestly think and why did you think it? And let's say that there are parts of my script that you really loved and there was a section of the script that you just didn't care for. Why? And not in a defensive way and not in an attacking way. But why? Because it, it's like a detective. It's like, hmm, what plays in my head is amazing. It's not amazing for you. I want to know why. Where is that disconnect? Maybe there is a piece of information or context that I knew that you didn't, I didn't get out well enough. And if I could just rewrite it so that becomes more viscerally clear to people, maybe you'll then have the experience I want. Maybe that section, I like it for very personal reasons, but it actually disconnects from this. There's a whole million reasons, but if I, and, and maybe, maybe the reason you didn't love my script, the honest truth is the characters just weren't compelling enough for you. They felt kind of flat. They felt kind of like they all spoke the same way. That's not now a rewrite, which is the mistake most people make. That is, okay, I'm not yet strong enough at characters or the story, the characters are great, but it kind of wandered around and it just, it just didn't seem like it had that forward thrust. And maybe I'm just not good at that forward thrust. Great. The growth, the fixed mindset, of course, is freaking out. But the growth mindset is celebrating because it's like, okay, now I know what I can do moving forward to get better as a writer. Now I got to figure out how do I train myself to get better at forward thrust or forward, better at characters. And so... If you follow a growth mindset, when you get feedback, if you loved my script top to bottom, and I know the process that I use to create it, and I can replicate that process, that is great news for me. If you didn't love my script top to bottom, and I can talk to you in the right way to figure out why you didn't, where the disconnects were, and I could realize where I have a weakness, where I need to get better at a skill set, where I need to create a new talent or get better at a talent, and I can figure out how to do it, that's amazing. So the growth mindset is not looking for an outcome, it's looking for the truth. So your question was really profound. Those 18 people, did they wanna know that they were in the 18 people? If you ask them, they'll all say yes. The reality is, if you were to tell them, and I never did, I never, I, I, that was, for right or wrong reasons, that was a line I would never cross. I would never tell someone if I thought they had what it took or didn't. I just didn't want to, because I felt like that's just my opinion. What is my opinion worth at the end of the day? And I don't want to inflict that on someone positively or negatively. So I don't know. I'm not saying this was a, 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 the right decision, but as a teacher to this day, if someone says, do you think I have what it takes or not? Well, first of all, I'll say, go read mindset because that's a fixed mindset question. <laughs> but even if I actually have an opinion, I'll never tell someone. Um, anyway, but if, I, if someone were to tell those people, 
the, they would say, I want to know the truth. And that is true for their growth mindset, but their fixed mindset does not want to know the truth. It wants an answer. It wants a specific answer. It wants a yes. Or the fixed mindset would be okay with, I don't think you have what it takes, but I don't think it will take that long for you to get there. The, the fixed mindset's like, well, oh, all right, I'll settle for that. But anything <laughs> beyond that, and then the fixed mindset's like, well, what do you know? Or, yeah, I don't, you know. So, and the reality is, what I've learned is that we are always both fixed mindset and growth mindset. And if you really do the work, you can feel, you know, kind of the ratios. And in fact, like people often ask me why I teach and there's a lot of answers, but I'll tell you one of the main reasons that I do this is as a writer, I had a very unhealthy relationship with my writing. It was really a torturous experience because as a writer, I was about as fixed mindset as you could be. As a teacher, I'm about as growth mindset as you can be. So for some reason, teaching is that one space in my life where it is just so easy to be egoless and growth mindset. And, you know, for other people, maybe that's religion or parenting or whatever. For me, it's teaching. Not sure why, but it is. And I didn't even know about mindset at the time. That's something I learned later on a, a, a brilliant student said, hey, you should read this book, I think. And I was like, oh my God, where's this been my whole life? And, um, but yeah, so for me, teaching, I'm sorry, writing had all these demons and, and anxiety and fears. And it was just this, uh, I was, I was a very angry person. And, and it was either what the F is wrong with my agent or this executive and this, and just, or what is wrong with me. And that was my only two choices. And as a teacher, it's, allows me to live in a growth mindset place and to be a much, it, it's very healing for me. And it's just, I get so much out of that. And then I really love working with writers and really helping them find and stay in that growth mindset because that is so important to a writer. Corey, from your time at film school and also, uh, you know, having writing instructors talk to you mm -hmm. when you were in college, mm -hmm. did you feel embraced? or discouraged? Because I'm thinking about like a Ray Bradbury interview I saw where he said he advised a lot of people not to, to take writing classes because he felt that they were always discouraged. Ah. Um, how did you feel as a student? Really encouraged. Did you? Okay. But that's actually why I would have people think twice about taking those classes because there's fixed mindset encouragement and there's growth mindset encouragement. And so you know, the very first teacher that I, let me step back. A lot of teachers that I know have a philosophy that the more you write, the better you'll become. And so their job is to encourage writers. And yeah, I mean, you, you're going to point out things they're not doing right. You're going to criticize. You're going to, but you always couch that with three compliments, you know, like the sugar <laughs> with the medicine. Sure. Uh -huh. And ultimately at the end of the day, your job is to make these people feel like they can do this, that they have what it takes. And that'll keep them writing. And the more they write, the better they'll become. And I don't, agree, I don't do that as a teacher for a variety of reasons. First, as I've said, I think most writers, when they first start writing, they see significant improvement. Because when we first start writing, we make lots of really dumb mistakes that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So if you're, if you're somewhat open to feedback and criticism and you're trying to get better and you have reasonably smart or really smart people in your life reading your stuff and giving you feedback, I do think people really start to make a real improvement. Then they hit a plateau, they'll stay on forever. 
And that plateau is where the more they write, the more the higher the pile of summarily flawed scripts are. Because if they have intuitive weaknesses or conceptual weaknesses, you can keep writing as much as you want. You're just going to keep making those mistakes. So I don't believe, I know writers who've been at it for 10 or 12 years and what they're writing today isn't really any better than what they're writing eight years ago. So I don't believe, I believe the more you write, the better you become without the right training and tools is for most people kind of a Santa Claus tooth fairy fantasy. Further, I do think it's really important to have someone in your life or people in your life who, who believe in you and love you and support you. And when you're feeling down, they're like, no, you can do this. And they can be the wind in your sails when the wind you know, goes away and you just sort of lose confidence and you lose your way. I think that's absolutely essential. I would never do that as a teacher. Um, I don't think someone should pay for that. And also, I don't want someone to become dependent on me. So I want them to find people in their lives and ultimately themselves to be able to have that, you know, confidence and love. And further, um, I think that the fixed mindset confidence is always pointing out what you're doing right and complimenting and you're so good, you're so good, you have what it takes. That's so fixed mindset. I think the growth mindset is there's tools that you can learn and let me teach you a tool. And so let, what, like, what is your biggest weakness as a writer? Let's spend four weeks doing nothing but training on that tool and then we're going to have you write a scene or a sequence and you're going to see and or, or you give it to other people and they're going to see oh my god you're you're suddenly better at this thing and then you're like oh that's the confidence i want to give someone i had a weakness i identified it or it was identified for me i had a specific training regimen i came out the other end stronger at that and maybe you're not as strong as you need to be yet but you can keep training and you can keep training and you realize i can get to the point where I'm as good as I need to be. Okay, now maybe I've got six other things I need to do that on, and so maybe it's gonna take six months or a year. That's growth mindset confidence. That's what I wanna instill in people. So my experience for the most part in film school was very gentle. Um, everyone came in and told us, you can make this, you can do this, you're amazing. And in my class, there were 12 of us. Three of us went on to have careers, um, and nine didn't. And one thing that the three of us had in common, um, we weren't smarter than the other. I certainly wasn't smarter than some of the others or a lot of the others. We didn't work harder. Um, honestly, I didn't work that hard in film school. I'm not proud of that, but I had a lot of procrastination issues. Uh, what we did have in common is we all had a manager, not the same manager, but we all had a manager who in their own way said, you're not as good as you think you are. Hmm and you need to get better in certain skill sets and I can help you do that. And in my case, it, it was a year of working with this manager, uh, turning weaknesses that I didn't know I had or I did know I had into strength. That's a big reason why I teach because I had access to that. If I didn't, I would have been like the nine who didn't. I mean, I, I had certain things that I was inherently really good at and I had certain things I was inherently really bad at and I had things I didn't know I was bad at. <laughs> and no one in film school was really helping me with that. It was, it was the manager who did that work. So I, I think, yeah, classes where they just sort of tear you down and discourage you uh, should be avoided at all costs. 
I know people who, who have troubles with their writing and, and they don't feel confident and they, they find the teacher that gives them confidence and support and they love that teacher and they become addicted to that teacher and they'll take, and it's a good business model for the teacher because they'll keep taking classes because they, they're taking classes to feel that feeling. Right. But that's not solving the problem. If, if I can make you feel confident or good about your writing or special, I can make you feel like you can get there. That doesn't mean anything. What matters is when you can feel that way. And the way you'll feel that way, in my opinion, is through proving to yourself that you're making progress and confidence through your training. So it sounds like this sort of military style, you know, boot camp breaking you down is, is going to harm someone. But at the same time, too much handholding and babying and, oh, you're one of our prize, you know, right. that, that sounds like that's also damaging. Like, yeah, you I think know, that's highly, highly addicting, but it's not going to, and you're going right. to feel good, but that's mm -hmm. like junk food. Sure. It tastes good, but it's not nutritious. It's not making you healthier. So I'm wondering with this manager, do you think you were more open to hearing than, than some of the other people? I mean, I mean, if you say that you feel that you were on the same level, right, right. was no. there a difference that you were maybe <laughs> so more that's a open? Great, that's a great question. Yeah. And as I, as I said earlier, I was such an incredibly fixed mindset person. So I was absolutely not open to hearing oh, okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> I got very lucky. So this is what happened. And, and I want to share this because... I try to share this with as many writers as I can because I think this is a really important story and there's something here that they can do which I would highly recommend. So what happened is I wrote this script and the story of the manager was that I was in a uh, writing group and there were some professional writers. There's actually a Academy Award nominated writer we met at her house. So that was really exciting and I had written the script and they were giving me feedback and long story short it got to the point where they're like this script's amazing, this script will sell, the only question is how much it will sell for. Do you want help getting an agent? And of course, that was like magic to my ears. And then I mentioned this to my uh, a professor at UCLA, who, you know, a lot of really big writers had come through that school and through his class. And so he volunteered to read the script and he goes, this is one of the three best scripts I've ever read in 20 years at UCLA. And again, I'm thinking of all these amazing writers that, so I'm like, well, I guess I'm as good as those. And um, he goes, this will definitely sell. Do you want help in getting a manager or an agent? And I was interning for a manager at the time, just as an intern. So as a favor, as a favor to that manager, I'm like, do you want to read this? Because I'm like, it's going to sell. <laughs> do, you want, do you want your 10% or not, buddy? And so he agreed to read it. Took like three weeks, which drove me crazy. And then we had a meeting I'll never forget. I go in there and he's like, this is a pretty good rough draft. Don't show it to one in the industry because... When you show stuff to people in the industry, they get coverage reports on it, and those are database. That's your first impression. But if it's not great coverage, you haven't just blown your chances at that production company. They're going to share that coverage with everybody. It's a database. So you've, bl you've blown your first impression across the board. And he said, this will not serve you well. But you have some real strengths. You have some real weaknesses. You have you know, some blind spots. I could help you with that. If you're and he's giving me this whole talk. And the whole time, I'm like, what is wrong with him? <laughs> and I'm like, did I tell you what the Academy Award nominated person said? Did I say it with my professor who represented Stevens or, you know, taught Stevens? It wasn't, anyway, you know. And he said, look, they were all telling you the truth. This is a better script than most scripts. It's an impressive script, but it's not nearly as good as what you need in the industry. He goes, look, you're, the people in the writing group who are working writers, your professor at UCLA, all smart people but they're not in the business of breaking writers into the business. I am. I know how good something has to be. This isn't close. Oh. And I'm like, didn't want to believe that. My fixed mindset's like, he's an idiot. 
And so what he said, and I'll, this was the best thing anybody could have said, is hire three studio readers, pay them under the table. If this script came through the tracking system, what coverage would you write? And then give me the coverage, the honest coverage. And if the coverage isn't good, it's not going to hurt you because it's, it, it's just you only see it. Nobody else sees it. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I did this. I paid him like 100, 150 bucks, three different people, someone at Imagine, someone at Warner Brothers, and someone at Scott Rudin's company. And the coverage came back, and it, it wasn't terrible, and it wasn't bad, it was okay, which is terrible. It, it, it would have hurt me. It was clear that this coverage was like, this is okay. Nothing special, nothing great here. Uh, and then on the writer, it says, um, you know, recommend, consider, I forget, it was low marks on the writing, on two of the three. And that, you can't hide from that. Yeah. And then the manager said, I'll work with you if you're willing to put your ego at the door and do this training. So I did, and it was like 14 months. Oh, wow. And it was grueling. He, he, was, he was not a good person, but, but his training was good. It was, he, it was Marine, it was much rougher than it had to be, but okay. And at the end of that time, he said, I now think the script is where it needs to be. I'll pay for coverage reports. And he paid for three coverage reports with three different people, uh, real actual readers. And it was all just exactly what you want, exceptional coverage. And literally three weeks later, Ridley Scott hires me to write Metropolis. I, I flies me to London. I mean, like my whole world changed. My whole life changed. And it never would have happened if that manager hadn't sort of forced me to pay for coverage. And so because at some point the fixed mindset can't hide. And that's what I always tell people. If you're thinking, like the biggest mistake you can make is go out to the marketplace before you're ready. And just because your friends think it's great and just because your teacher thinks it's great and just because the script consultant you hired is great. And I, I don't do it anymore. I used to do script consulting, but I say don't listen to those people because they often, they're running a business and, um, a business wants happy repeat customers, so they often tell you what you want to hear. And even if you find a script consultant who has incredible integrity, which is rare, but they exist, they're not in the business of breaking writers into the business. And, and I wouldn't listen to their advice, per se. I know people who are like, I, the script consultant said this, this, and this. I went out to the marketplace, look at the coverage, it stunk. It happens all the time. I say, hire actual readers under the table in TV or feature, wherever you are, and get the actual coverage report that they would get. And if all three coverage reports come back, recommend, recommend highest marks, then you're ready to go out, then, then yeah, get on the highest mountain, pound your chest, and get everybody to read your script. If that's not the case, stay off the radar. You don't want people reading your material, it's gonna hurt you. And figure out how you can train yourself to get better. So, sorry for a long answer, but no, I was very fixed mindset. And if that manager hadn't done that for me, I'd be taking classes today. I wouldn't be teaching them. Corey, let's talk about someone who has an agent okay. and two scenarios, either they've been dropped by their agent and, and I don't know how you would be dropped, would be via email, telephone call, and on the flip side, those who feel that they should drop their agent. So two scenarios. Well, the second one's hard because, um, the, of course the question is why do you want to drop your agent? And it's usually because they're not working for me and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I'd have a career or a better career if they were. Well, the challenge, you're in a really tough spot because if you're going to try to find another agent, they're going to know. It's sort of like trying to find a wife, but you're married, right? So they know you're married to someone. 
So then the question is, why are you leaving your wife? And why do you want a new wife? And then, because if the writers start saying, well, my agent's not doing this, my agent's not paying attention to me, everyone in town's gonna say, you're blaming your agent, but it's you. And your writing's not good enough. And, and oh yeah, I wanna take, I'm a super busy agent. What I wanna do is take a client who's not that good, who always <laughs> blames their agent. Also, as an agent, you know, what I love is spending time and energy on someone who's not loyal to me. So yeah, let me jump in you know, business with you. When you have an agent and you want to switch agents, like that's the hardest place to be. And if you really are there, first of all, just stop. And, and, and the question becomes, imagine that there is a factory that's polluting a river and then down river, all these kids are getting really sick. And Doctors Without Borders flies into that village and they start working with those kids, giving them medicines and treatments to help those kids get stronger. Doctors Without Borders is doing a great thing, but they're running in a circle because they can't, they're not fixing the problem, they're fixing the consequence of the problem. The only way to fix the problem is to stop the factory from polluting or get a different water source for the village. So the question is, is the problem that your agent isn't working for you? Probably not. That's probably the sick kids. What's the factory? So if I'm with that writer, let's sit down and talk about why your agent's not working for you. Because at the end of the day, an agent is a salesperson and an agent is selling writers and material and they have only so much time and energy so they're gonna prioritize on the ones that can sell. So if the, that means your agent's not prioritizing for you. Why not? And nine out of 10 times, the problem isn't the agent, the problem is with you or your writing. And if you don't realize that and work on that, you can try to switch agents as long as you want. All that's gonna happen, you're getting a reputation as someone who blames everyone else and isn't loyal, and you're gonna be in a really bad shape. Now, is it possible that just something happened to your agent and there is nothing to do with you? It's possible, but it's very unlikely. Let's say that's the case. I don't think you as a writer should be trying to change agents. You need to find an intermediary. So you're going to, that's why you have a manager or an entertainment lawyer. But that's why you all, everyone has a manager today. So if your agent's not working for you, you talk to your manager and your manager will tell you it's your fault schmuck. This is what you need to be doing. Or if it's something with the agent, then the manager can talk to another agent and sort of put the thing in that you might want to try to steal this person, but you don't want to be out there doing it. Okay, so let's suppose you get the call or the email that you've been dropped. What do you do? Well, what I believe in working with writers is when something like that happens, I believe that you should give yourself a 24-hour fixed mindset pity party. Because like <laughs> when you try to stay growth mindset, and it's so exhausting when you're pushing everything down. So scream, cry, drink, yell, blame your mom, blame your dad, blame your, blame your cat. I mean, 24 hours, just have your meltdown. But then the end of 24 hours, that's done. Spend those 24 hours wisely. Now it's time to go to a growth mindset. And now what you wanna know is why they dropped you. And you may not be able to find out um, because agents won't always tell you the truth. It'll depend on the agent and your relationship. Again. You probably have an agent and a manager, and the manager should be able to tell you the truth. And if the manager won't tell you the truth, probably not the best manager for you. So you try to figure out the truth. And if you can figure out the truth, then that will lead you to what you want to do about it. But if I can step back for a second, I love my agent. I think he's the best agent in the world. I'm rep, a rep at WME. 
There's another agent WME who I think is the second best agent in the world. Her name is Adriana Alberghetti. And she said something once that I think is so important for writers to hear. She said that some writers get it and some writers don't get it. And the writers who get it are all working. And the writers who don't get it, most of them aren't working. And so as an agent, she just wants to work with writers who get it. And this is what it is. A lot of writers think that you know, to write a script that changes your life, to write a script that gets you your first job or to get Ridley Scott to hire you or to get a show, whatever it is you're aspiring to. You have a career, but you're trying to take it to the next level. They think it's about writing the, having the right script at the right time at the right place. That's not it. That's a mistake. That surrenders all control and power to the universe. The reality is your job is to think in six script cycles. And you have to be writing the right kinds of scripts, pitch perfect, authentic. We talked about that earlier. And assuming you trained yourself up to be able to do that. You need to write six of those every two years. And the reason is, if you write six of these pitch perfect, authentic scripts, one of them is going to go out to the marketplace and just fizzle and you'll never know why. And then um, two or three of them will go out and they'll start to get some traction, but then something will happen and derail it. And then there'll be one or two that's absolutely going to happen. You have the director attached, you have the stars, there's a bidding war, there's no way it's not going to happen, and something at the very last second is going to derail it. And one of the six will actually go the distance and sell, or it'll be that script that gets you the next three or four years of getting staffed on show. There'll be one of those six scripts that will just catch lightning in a bottle. One of those six. You don't know which one it'll be. So if you're not working right now, you ought to be writing three or four of these scripts a year because you're thinking in six script cycles. So any one script goes out and ultimately doesn't do what you need to do. You don't feel like a victim. That's one of six. This is the key. If you are working, you have two jobs now. You have your day job and your weekend night job. So if your day job is a feature assignment for Ridley Scott, or your day job is you just got staffed on Jane the Virgin, one of my students, just, that's why I keep saying just got staffed. She's very excited. Um, you have to do everything. You have to, that, you have to excel at that job. But then at nights or weekends, you got to be writing pitch perfect, authentic scripts. Um, and maybe you're not writing three or four a year. Maybe you're writing two a year because, but you don't stop writing these scripts and creating these scripts because one of these scripts is going to be the thing that takes your career to the next level. And so the writers that don't get it is I'm working, I'm making money, I've made it. Plus I'm busy. It's like I have a family, I'm writing, there's no other time. And I get that. But the reality is the writers that get it, even though they're working, they're still always creating these new material and they think about it in six script cycles. And so a lot of times agents drop the writers who aren't doing that. And, you know, I get it because like when I was a working studio writer, I wasn't continuing to write these scripts. I was just doing my studio assignment work and I was making good money and I was really, I was just too busy. I didn't want to do that. My agent kept telling me to do this. I didn't. And he said, at some point your writing career is going to end badly. Um, and I worked nonstop for 11 years, but I was a working writer, but I never became an A-list writer. And the only way I could have become an A-list writer is to keep writing these scripts. So there was another writer, Eric Singer, who wrote a script and he started getting all these studio assignments and he was making a lot of money, but he kept writing on his own time these pitch perfect authentic script year after year after year. And eventually one of them hit and it was uh, American Hustle.
And so he's now suddenly a huge writer. I know the guys that wrote The Nick, same thing. You know, they're, they're staff writers and they were making really good money, but they were writing stuff that they really believed in and The Nick was one of them and, that's, uh, and that script just took them to a whole other level. Um, Alan Ball with American Beauty, we can go on and on and on. So often agents drop writers who might be really great writers, but they don't get it. They don't keep creating this new absolute. So it's either they don't keep creating material or they're not creating the right kind of material. It's not good enough. I have a lot of friends who are agents and if you keep creating the right kind of content, even when you're working and, and the content's amazing and you play well with others, it's very unlikely they're going to drop you because that's exactly the kind of person they want to represent. And in that case, if they drop you, it, it could be a conflict with their client. It could be a lot of things that have nothing to do with you. But if you're not doing all of those things and an agent drops you, then you have to look in the mirror. Okay, so the time of this interview is, uh, we're in 2017. Is it better for a screenwriter to focus on spec screenplays or a spec television pilot? So I think that TV writing and feature film writing are different art forms. There's a lot of overlap, but they're very different. So I think that someone has to first of all say, do I want to be a feature film writer? or do I want to be a TV writer? Now it's possibly, possible they want to do both, but generally writers have a preference to one or the other. Now that said, there is so much more opportunity and money in TV than there is in features. Features are getting better, but not as good. Although I know a lot of TV writers who are sneaking over to the feature neighborhood because there's a lot less competition. But that said, I do have clients and students who want to be feature film writers, but want to become TV writers as their day jobs while they keep writing their Moonlight or their Manchester by the Sea or whatever they're writing. But what I would say is, you know, there's this training of all the creative integration and skill sets. And then when you really get to that, the, the, the last training of really designing and executing on your stories and your characters, it's di there's different training for TV or feature. So I would say if someone is sort of new to this whole game, I'd pick one of those forms and really get strong at that before you try to learn the other. I wouldn't be bouncing back and forth because then you kind of become kind of good but not great at either. Now, if someone's really great at one form, yeah, focus on the other. So it is really hard to sell a feature film original script, but it's getting a little bit easier, which means it's gone from impossible to almost impossible. <laughs> but it, I mean, I have... In the last two months, I've had four, five, four students sell feature scripts. And so it is certainly possible, but you see more action on the, the TV side. But I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they want to go write a TV script because they think that it's, there's more action and it's easier, but their heart's not really into it. They don't really want to be a TV writer or not really trained to be a TV writer and they're wasting their time. So I, I maybe I'm... A romantic but I, I just think that there's gonna be so much training and so much dedication and sacrifice to get into this business and and what people don't understand is that getting in the business as hard as that is is a lot easier than staying in the business and if you're gonna go through all of that then do it for a career that you want 
Do it for a life that you want. I mean, TV writing and feature film writing is very different. I was a feature film writer for 11 years. Um, I had total control of my schedule. Uh, I would take meetings maybe one or two, maybe one or two days a week, but only when I wanted to. Most of the time, I, I could be in Europe writing. I could be here writing. I could do whatever. I had so much control over my schedule. Um, I would work really intently on something for three or four months, and I could take two months off. TV writing is very different. Um, you're going to be working maybe eight, nine months intensely, and then you get time off. You're going to be working in a room a lot with other people. Um, some people love that. Some people hate that. There is a lot more politics that can go in the TV writing. Some people can thrive in that. Some people hate that. Um, now, as a feature film writer, I would constantly be writing scripts, pouring heart and soul into something that never got made. You know, I had friends, I had a friend who was a, a writer on Mad Men, and she would write something, and then, you know, a few months later, we could watch it. And I was so jealous of that. Um, she was so jealous that I did my work uh, literally in Paris for two months at one time. She was very jealous of that. So I would say, like, think about your life. Think, what I always tell writers is, if I can guarantee you success writing for movies or TV, which would you pick? And whichever one you pick, if I could guarantee you success writing any kind of thing, you know, any kind of TV show, comedy, drama, or, or a movie, what would you pick? And then work backwards from there to see what kind of spec scripts you should be writing. And so have a vision for what kind of career you want, what kind of life you want. Work backwards and write those kinds of scripts. And that's plan A. And hopefully plan A will work. Now, over enough period of time, if plan A is not working, you can consider plan B. Plan B is, would be the easier script to sell? Where, where is the marketplace? How do I game the marketplace? Now, that doesn't set you up for the life you want or the career you want. That's just, I want an agent. I want to sell something. The mistake that I made that I hope others don't make is plan B was my plan A. I was in film school and I said, I, I heard the story how Jim Carrey, and I don't know if this is true or not, uh, was a struggling comic and he said, um, someone told him to do this. He, he, he wrote a check to himself for $1 million and he post-dated it a year later. And he said, in one year, I'm going to be able to cash this check. And within one year, he got living color and he made millions of dollars. Is that a true story? I don't know. I hope so. I don't know. But I was 23 years old when I heard it, so I thought it was a true story. So I didn't write my, I, was, I started writing a check, but it, it was, I just couldn't do that. But I did write in my calendar one year later, I will have an agent and I will have sold a script. I wrote that in my account. I told everyone, a year from now, I'm going to do that. So my, when we're walking, we move in the direction of where we're looking. That's our intent. So that was my intent. In one year, I'll have an agent and sell a script. And it, it was actually 13 months later, so I, I didn't quite make it. I had an agent. I actually didn't sell a script, but I sold a pitch to Ridley Scott, and he flew me to London, and it was on the front page of Variety. So I was willing to call that a success. Okay. And... What I realized is after I finished Metropolis and it was on the front page of Variety, Ridley was going to make it and he said very positive things about the script and me, I was named on the front page of Variety, made my mom's day and suddenly I was the hot writer in town and I was getting all these job offers and I remember thinking, all these offers that I'm getting are for kinds of things I don't really want to be writing. So I called my agent, I'm like, I don't really want to be writing those kind of things, that's so stupid. I'm like, I'll be writing these kind of things. So get me those kind of offers. And I forget what she said. She said she's such a polite, classy, smart woman. But she basically said, you idiot, if you wanted to be doing this, why did you write this script in Metropolis? Like, everything you wrote lined you up for this career. 
If you don't want this career and you want that career, why did you write those scripts? Why did you sell Metropolis? And the honest answer is because I was just trying to get an agent and sell something. I hadn't thought. I was 24 years old. I didn't, I was so fixed mindset. I said, if I can't sell a script in a year, I'm going to law school. Because if I don't sell a script in a year, means I don't have what it takes, which is very fixed mindset and very stupid. And um, so I tell people, don't make the mistake I made. Plan B is, okay, I just want to get an agent. I just want to sell something. I just want to validate I can do this. But plan A is what career do I want? What life do I want? And reverse engineer what you should be writing to give yourself that. You mentioned being the hot young writer, you know, being on the front page of Variety, your name's out there, you're probably your phone's ringing. And I know you, you've talked in other interviews about how some of that went away for a little bit. Can you talk about if someone else is in a similar situation, how they regroup? Yeah. What I'd like to do is give the single best piece of advice that I ever got that I ignored. And so what happened is when I was on the front page of Variety and all these offers were coming in, um, there was uh, an agent at my agency, Barbara Dreyfus, who didn't represent me, but she took me out to lunch and she gave me the following advice. She said, the next script you write is the most important script you'll ever write. It will determine the trajectory of your career. So right now, you, you were an unknown person. Now you're on everyone's radar. You worked with a high-profile director. He's planning on making it, the movie. He said how great your script was. Everybody in town wants to work with you. So everyone is like so hyped up on you. Now, there are writers who are commodity writers. They, they go in and they write these big summer movies and these big action movies. They make a lot of money. But there's nothing special about them. And then there's writers who are A-list writers, writers who have these amazing careers. The next script you write will put you on a trajectory. So her advice was this, don't take any job that you wouldn't have done for free, which is to say you love this project and you believe you could just knock it out of the park. You love this so much, you would do it without getting paid. Now we're gonna get you paid, but don't take anything that falls short of that. And you'll have to say no to a lot of stuff because most of what they're gonna offer you is crap or just not a good fit for you. And the offers will start to slow down and you're going to panic and think you have to grab the next best one. Don't. And the offers will keep slowing down. And I'm telling you this, that even, you'll think the offers will eventually go away and they won't. But even if they do, literally you've said no to everything, spec your next script and make it something that you love and knock it out of the park. Because she said if the next one's amazing, then that puts you on a trajectory. That, then people see you a certain way. Later on is the time to do it for the money. Later on, we'll grab a lot of money. But right now, this next script, you're on, now everyone knows who you are. This next script is going to tell them what kind of writer you are. And when she said that, like, I had that chill up my spine. Like, this is absolutely true. I need to hear this and do this. And I said no to something. I said no to something. The third time I said no was a Disney project. And they doubled my quote. And I said no. And they doubled my quote and I said yes. And I'm embarrassed to say that that project, of all the projects, was not only a script I didn't want to write, it was a movie I wouldn't even want to see. But it was sudden, I don't come from money, I had student debt, and it was more money than I ever thought you could make in years, and, and I was going to get paid for three months. And so the precedent that I set 
I think with myself at that point is I'm in this for the money. And, and I, and that really locked me into a career path and it was, I wish I could go back in time. I, I feel like that was a really big test and I failed it. I, I, I could see where a lot of people would not blame you. I, and I'm not even sure which project you're, you're referring to. Forgive me, but That's uh, I mean, so you really feel like even the money that you took and probably it changed many things for you because money, money can do wonderful things. It can right. also hurt, but uh, I mean. But here's the thing, if I hadn't taken that yeah. project and that project never got made. And you know, as a writing sample, I think it was, it was good, but it wasn't special. If I had waited and waited and took something else, or even did something original, and if it was great, I would have made so much more money down the road. Down the, I mean, mm. so you know, my agent, you know, represents me, but he also represents Aaron Sorkin. Um, I worked nonstop as a studio writer for eleven years. I made a lot more money than I ever thought I could make. Do you know the difference between how much money Aaron Sorkin is made? I don't know, but I can, I'm sure that what Aaron Sorkin makes is not even in the same zip code as what I made. He also represents J.K. Rowling. Now, I'm not saying that I could have become Aaron Sorkin or that level, or I could have been J.K. Rowling. I don't know. But what I do know is that the choices I made prevented that from being a possibility. I was a studio writer. I just kept doing a bunch of action movies and some were action comedy movies. Sometimes I thought they were fun, sometimes I didn't, but I loved the paycheck. And I loved just making the money and the deal. And I never stopped and wrote from my heart. I never wrote. And I'll tell you, one of the main reasons is I was so fixed mindset, I was so afraid of rejection. I was so afraid that every script I wrote, I was afraid that people would say, oh, you're not that good of a writer, you're a fraud. Now, if I wrote something from my heart, if I wrote something that was authentic, that exposed me into the material, now they could say, you're not a good writer and you're not even a good person. Like they could reject me as, if they rejected my material and it was very personal, then that would feel like they were rejecting me as a person. And that was too painful. I was not gonna allow that to happen. I mean, my agent was begging me to write something authentic and from my heart. My wife was begging me. My manager was begging me. My golden retriever was begging me. And I just wouldn't. And so it's just, it's just, A, it was short-sighted. First of all, money isn't everything, but even if money is everything, I potentially could have made so much more money. But more importantly, I could have written stuff that I was in love with and I could have, look, maybe I would have, I could have tried for that career. I could have written authentic stuff. I could have swung for the fences. I could have tried for that A-list career and maybe come up short and, and then backed into the career I had. Maybe, that I, there's no, I don't know. But I know that the choices I made meant I was never going to have that career. I was never going to be creatively fulfilled. I was never going to be writing the stuff that I really wanted to be writing. I was never going to be writing from love. I was always going to be writing from fear. I regret that. And so part of the reason I teach is I want to help writers do it the right way and help empower them with the tool. I wish someone taught me creative integration up front and some of the stuff. But I, I, I hope that I can be an influence on writers so that they can have the best possible career that they're capable of and maybe even a better one than that.
So if you were to take yourself to lunch instead yeah. of that woman, yeah. and that it was it was an older you talking to that younger you, would you have said the exact same thing? Or I would have a little bit, and I would have said, "And look, I'm from the future, so let me tell you." And I would have I would have told them all the terrible things that happened. And I I honestly think that that younger me would have made the same decision, and the reason is, it he he was so fixed mindset. And fixed mindset, you are just working from fear. And you just can't see the truth. Or you can't... I, I, and I, hopefully that's not true. Ho hopefully I would have. But anyway, I'm not confident that I would have made a different decision. I'm not proud of that, but I think that's the truth. But I will say, you know, one of the things my wife... My wife always sees, like, the real truth. And, you know, one of the things she says, like, all of things happen in my career is actually a blessing. I mean, it softened me up. It got me out of this fear space and, and I wouldn't be the teacher that I am now had I not made those mistakes and gone through that. And I did make a lot of money, which is nice. So it's like, you know, it, it, it had a lot of perks. But yeah, I wish I could have done it differently. So you've worked with a lot of young students and I'm curious what the, the idea in their minds of what it's like out in the real world is versus what the real world is like in terms of whether they were the two best writers right. in, the, in the whole class. Well, I, I think, you know, when I teach a class at UCLA or in my private workshops, there's all these people that just want to be professional writers. They have no idea what it's like to be a professional writer. And I don't think you ever know until you do it. And so it's just, I want to be a professional writer and I had a vision of what that would be. I, I think most people's vision is I sit in a room or in a room with other people, but let's say I sit in a room and I write what I want to write and I write it in a way that I want to write it and I write what I love and everyone else will love it. It don't work that way. Um, people have a process to how they write and that process usually is what's comfortable because it plays their strengths and it hides their weaknesses. And it's learning how to write in a way that other people love it as much as you love it. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of training. And then there's deadlines and there's politics. It's, there's a lot that goes into having a writing career beyond just the writing. I mean, the reality was like you have two careers. You have the writing, you know, you have, you have to create the content, but then there's the career management and the meetings and the marketing and always be looking for your other job. There's a lot that goes into it. But at the same time, um, I mean, to get paid and to be able to make a living playing with characters and playing with stories and, and doing something that, especially if it's creatively fulfilling and you get paid for it, you know, for, for people who do it right and train themselves the right way, they literally do something that they would do for free and they get paid, and perhaps they get paid millions of dollars, perhaps they get paid tens of millions of dollars, perhaps they get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps they get paid a hundred thousand dollars to do what you would do for free, that actually is possible. And I have a growing list of clients and students who have that lifestyle. So I think anyone who really is drawn to this should absolutely pursue it, you know, and just pursue it in the right ways. We talk about though the beginning stages of their career where a lot of it's going to rest on discipline and being your own taskmaster. And I think it's easy when you right. think, okay, I have to, you know, get back to this person's email on do I have right. this finished and, and, and right. finished. 
But when in the beginning, there's going to be a lot of time alone. Right. There's going to be a lot of time being your own taskmaster right. and how difficult that is. Yeah, so it is really difficult in the beginning. And a lot of writers have this fantasy or this illusion, and I did, and I was wrong, is that you know, you're, you're working and you're making money and, you have, and you're trying to write and you're so busy and writing so hard. And, and it, God, when you sell something and when you get hired, then you, don't, you can quit your day job and you can quit this and you can just write and oh, what a luxury that would be because you're so time starved. But when you first break, like when I first broke in the business, you know, I had two months to write the script for Metropolis. But almost every day I had meetings and I had to go in meetings and I was talking about other projects and pitching and it, I actually was spending more time on that than I was on my day job. So I actually had less time to write and you were just pulled in so many directions and so discipline really matters. So one of the things that I teach writers from the very beginning, non you know, writers who are starting out and then the one, and a lot of them won't do this, but the ones that do, not only do they become better writers, this will save their rear ends when they have a career, is I teach them the idea of a writer's schedule. So what that means is if you have a job that pays the bills, and Thursday at three o'clock, you have to do a marketing proposal to your boss. I know where you're gonna be Thursday at three o'clock. You're gonna be doing that proposal. And if you don't feel like it, and you don't feel like the proposal's that good, you're still gonna do the best you can. And if you feel like watching TV or napping, you're gonna be there or you're not gonna have a job. And you know, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., you are supposed to meet with this client, you're going to do that. And you schedule your life around that. So what I tell people is no one is going to treat you like a professional until you are a professional. No one's gonna invest money in you until you put the money where your mouth is. So. You have a career, perhaps you have a family, perhaps you have all of these pulls on your time. I get that. Every Sunday night, you're gonna create a writer's schedule for the next week. And maybe you can only write 45 minutes a day, uh, ideally an hour or two hours. Let's say 90 minutes a day. You will block out that writing time, be it at 7.30 in the morning, be it at six o'clock, whatever it is, for every day for that week. Now, if you've blocked out Thursday from 7.30 to 8.30 is your writing time, I know where you're gonna be at 7.30, you're gonna be writing. And it's not, if you feel like it, because that's like your marketing meeting with your boss. So you schedule out your writing time every single week and then you honor that. And if you're not willing to do that and you're not willing to honor that, why should anyone else invest money in you? And so the writers who will adhere to that and have that writer schedule and stick to it before they have a career, then when they have a career, when they, they have that beginnings of a career. Because the beginnings of a career, it, it, you, you have so much demands on your time and all of these meetings, and you need to take these meetings. You need to strike while the iron is hot. Um, you, it really saves them because they'll carve out that time and they'll put everything around that writing time. So I think a writing schedule is really, really important. We talk about managing distractions because I mean, it's one thing if someone's got a writing schedule in 1992 but now we have the internet, we have text messages, we have email, we have all Right, so what I, what I tell writers and what I see the successful writers do is they live in 1992. So, but they, what they'll do is often, um, now it depends, let's say this person is a morning writer. So basically, let's say they get up at, I don't know, they get up, they do their exercise or they have their breakfast and they have their three hours of writing. And that's gonna end at 12 o'clock, from nine to 12. 
So from the moment they wake up until 12 o'clock, they have no internet. They will turn their router off. Or you can actually program your router to go off or you can program your... So they don't check emails, they don't check text, they don't check their phone. They live in a pre-internet world until 12 o'clock. And they don't, their phone is turned off. Now, I actually know one writer and I thought this was, this was brilliant. They are like, just in case my wife needs to get a hold of me, they actually got a pager. It was really hard to find a pager, but you can, <laughs> you can actually go 1992 and you get a pager. He's got a pager and the only person that has that number is his wife and his agent. But his agent knows you only page me if it's an emergency. And same thing with his wife. And so he has his pager there, but that's all. He has no other electronics that work. And, um, and then at 12 o'clock, he joins 2017 and he takes his meeting. And, or people do that at night or the afternoon. But I would say for your writing time, it party like it, write, write like it's 1992.